So we started the year off looking at the Sabbath. Here's what we're going to do for the next two weeks. We're going to be looking at a subject matter that many of us feel very bad at. Some of us um, even would go so far as to question our salvation as a result of not being better at it. We know that we should be doing it, but we don't know how to do it. The subject for the next two weeks is very simple. It is just how do we walk by the Spirit? Let me tell you on the front end, I am not going to be able to unpack in two sermons everything that's necessary to understand about walking in the Spirit. What I am going to be able to do is to give you everything that's essential to know the basics to get started. Because it's not rocket science. But there are many of us today in our spiritual pilgrimage, and and we just say, you know, I don't feel very good at this whole Christian thing. I I know what I should be thinking. I know what I should be desiring. I know... But when I look at my life and, and what I value, and I, I just don't know that I can do it as well as Fred does it or as well as Jane does it. I certainly don't think I do it as well as my mom does it. Uh, I probably do it better my dad does it. Uh, I don't, when we look around at other people, we say, I just don't know that I'm as good of a Christian as they are. Many of us think that. I don't know where you would consider yourself in this thinking. How would you rate yourself? Please don't answer out loud. How would you rate yourself when it comes to being, quote, a good Christian? I hope after this two weeks that you will forever get rid of that category of being a good Christian. And hopefully we'll just think along the lines of, I'm just a child of God who's trying to figure out how to walk with him. So the title for these two weeks, this series, is just By the Spirit, and what does it look like? Now, there's going to be two sides of the coin, if you will. If we call uh, walking by the Spirit a coin, there's going to be a head side and there's going to be a tail side. On the tail side is what we're going to talk about today, and that is about resisting the sinful urges that come our way. On the head side is about pursuing or embracing the longings that the Spirit of God guides us with and leads us and puts inside of us. So we're going to have to have a defensive posture, and we're going to have to have an offensive posture. Isn't that true of life? There are things that we need to do to defend in order to protect, and there are things that we need to do on the offense in order to move forward. Think about any relationship that you have. It could be a friendship. It could be a marriage. It could be a parent-child relationship. Any relationship that you have There is, at some level, a defensive posture that is necessary. In other words, you want to resist saying some of the things that you want to say sometimes, correct? Because it's in the best interest of everyone there that you not say exactly what's on your mind at the moment. And then there is the offensive side, which is, let's choose some words that are going to be constructive in this moment. There's a defensive posture in every marriage. I want to make sure that I have policies in place in my own personal life, regardless of whether or not the church ever asked me to do it. I want to make sure that I'm not in situations that are going to put me in a position that might lead to something devious. So, for example, I don't have appointments in which I go and eat a lunch with a woman alone. It goes so far as our own staff. Just in this past week, Brooke and I have been trying to get together to celebrate birthdays since July. Brooke, Jesse, we uh, look around. Is there anybody in the office that can go with us? 
I have no concern about that particular relationship. It's just the principle. There's a defensive side of the equation. Then there's the offensive side of the equation. I want to intentionally pursue great conversation with Judah. I want to avoid some things with a woman not named Judith, but I really want to pursue those things with Judith. There's a defensive and an offensive posture in every relationship that we will have. The same is true in our walk with God. When it comes to walking by the Spirit, the Scriptures are going to call us to do some things defensively, and they're going to call us to do some things offensively. Now, I don't have to convince anyone of this, do I? This is way more fun. This is way more enjoyable. This over here involves, ah! And this over here is, yes! If you have your Bibles, open with me to Galatians, and we're going to be in the fifth chapter. I want to make this statement, give you a quote, and then we'll read from the Scriptures. We all have natural but sinful urges. There is not a person on planet Earth today. There's not a person who has ever existed except for one who lived a couple of thousand years ago that does not have natural but sinful urges. Oscar Wilde said this, I can resist anything but temptation. Do you feel that sometimes? In honor of God's word, would you stand as we read together, as I read rather from Galatians chapter 5, it'll be up on the screens, verses 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You may be seated. Now, Paul is an apostle, and Paul was not one of the original 12 that Jesus chose while he was walking the earth. Paul is a guy who spent a great deal of time studying the Old Testament law. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. His list is impressive. If you were to look at that list, you would say, wow, this is a really good Christian. Of course, you would have been called a Jew. He memorized sections of the Bible he could teach. He knew answers to questions that you and I would never even know to ask. Paul observed everything there was to observe about the law. And yet he's on his way walking on a road because what he was passionate about 
was killing Christians. He wanted to get rid of them. He was convinced that Jesus was just some heretic, and so he really wanted to get rid of the Christians, the followers of Jesus. And while he's walking down a road, boom, this light shines. It blinds him. He hears a voice that comes from heaven. It is the person of Jesus himself. And he asked Paul this question, dude, why are you doing this? Now, that's David McNeely's paraphrase. <clears throat> he repents. Jesus instructs him to go to this location. He goes to this location. He shows up. That guy was really, really nervous about Paul coming and hanging out with him for a little while. Reputation, killing people like me. You would also be a little afraid. Paul has a radical turnaround in his life. God takes him into a desert and teaches him in a unique way for a couple of years, a period of time. And then he comes and he writes several letters to several churches. He plants churches particularly in, in epicenters, in, in areas where you could have a, a, a church here that would plant other churches in the surrounding area. He was just always on the move. Now, for those of you that like stability and security, you like the same thing over and over again, you would have never wanted to be a partner with Paul. Plant a church, hang out for a little while, move somewhere else, plant a church, hang out for a little while. In this location, he probably would get beaten for a little while. In this one, he was arrested for a little while. In this one, he was actually dragged out. He was dead. He was brought back to life. Get up, let me go back in and preach to him again. You probably wouldn't want to hang out with Paul very much, but Paul was used mightily by God to bring about some incredible things for the church for the long haul. Paul was doubted by the people in Galatia. They said, yeah, we don't really know if you got enough to be considered follow-worthy. So Paul takes a good portion of the time to defend how God has actually set him up. He does that. But the main thing he was trying to get across in this letter is you cannot, you cannot become good enough in order to be accepted by God on your own. Cannot was not a statement of prohibition. It was a statement of incapability. You cannot, incapable, do enough things to impress God to the degree that he says, Woo, look at all that you have done. Now I'm taking you serious and just come on in, brother. Paul would say, you cannot outsend the cross. You can't do anything to remove yourself from God once you have been brought into relationship with him, and you can't do anything to start that kind of relationship. You can't do enough good things. You can't say no to enough bad things and yes to enough good things in order for God to say that the hard work has really motivated me, and so now you're in. No, you can't do it. Observance to law won't make it. And the very first verse of Galatians 5 is the key verse to the entire book. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not submit to a yoke of slavery. What is that yoke of slavery? The yoke of slavery was believing that somehow or another I've got to keep every single portion of the law in order to maintain the relationship with God. He says you're no longer under that system. Now, this was not sinking in very well. The people were abandoning the gospel, and so Paul's trying to spell it out for them. He gets to this section, this last section, and he devotes two chapters to just walking in the Spirit. 
Verse 16, but I say. Now, what is the but in contrast of? Well, right up above it. You were called to freedom, brothers. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He says, let us do this. Let us love others. Let's pursue this. Go on the offense and do the things that are called to develop relationships. He says, guard against this right here, though. Guard against devouring one another. How does that happen? Well, he tells us. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk empowered by God. Walk in a direction towards God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. That word gratify means to bring to completion or, or to, uh, 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 it, it finishes its intended purpose. Walk by the Spirit, do this, and you will not gratify the flesh. If you're not familiar with this term, the flesh, you're going to see a description of the flesh here in a moment. You're going to think, that seems a bit extreme. The flesh, he says, he's going to bring into, into a contrast and comparison. Now, I want to give you an outline. I think I put this in the notes. I want to just show you this. I don't know if I explained this to the folks, so if it did not explain it, this is my fault. But I want you to see how this structure goes. He's going to work in an order and then go in the reverse order for this particular section. So verses 16 through 26. He's going to tell us, first of all, to do this. That's verse 16. Understand this in verse 17. Believe this in verse 18. And then he says, know this about the flesh. Those four things. Do this, understand this, believe this. Know this about the flesh. Now he's going to take the same thing and go in the reverse order. Verses 22 and 23, know this about the Spirit, believe this, verse 23, understand this, verse 24, finally he closes with do this in verses 25 and 26. Do what? Walk in the power of the Spirit, verse 16, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Understand this, verse 17, understand that we are at war. Do you remember the cartoons if you're old enough, you remember Saturday morning cartoons. Greatest things in the world. Uh, we don't have to have Saturday morning cartoons now because there's 24-hour cartoon networks. But Saturday mornings was a, a special time for kids of my generation because you got to get up and you got to wait for, in particular, let's acknowledge we're all waiting for Bugs Bunny. It was the greatest of the cartoons that was out there. In order to see uh, the Wally Coyote and Bugs Bunny somehow kill each other 47 times in one episode. Okay. In there, though, and I can't remember which particular cartoon this was, but do you remember um, there was this one that would have this little devil on one side and this little angel on one side? They had these shoulders and they just begin talking to one another. Do you remember that? Let me tell you what the scriptures is not indicating. You have this cute little flesh, and it's sort of just whispering some things in your ear, and you got this cute little angel whispering some things in your ear, and so... Here's sort of the bad little Dave, and here's the, the good little Dave. And so these little voices talking to me, man, just choose the good stuff so you can wear the halo and be good. That is not the picture that the scriptures portray. We don't have a cute, innocent 
flesh. It may look like a little gremlin at the beginning, but do you remember what happened in that movie? Sorry, I just had another dated reference. Pour water on that dude, he becomes gnarly. Our flesh is not cute, and it is not a small little battle that is taking place currently right now in the life of every single true follower of Jesus. Those who actually love God, who want to serve God, who want their lives to be used by God for all of eternity, there is not this cute little battle that takes place inside of us. It is an all-out war. It is an assault, one from the other, because they hate each other. The Spirit doesn't just dislike the flesh, and the flesh doesn't just dislike the Spirit. They hate one another. The language that he uses in here, we don't get it strong enough in the English language, but this is what's intended. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, and for what purpose? To keep each other from doing the things that they want to do. Let me just say this. I would, uh, would, would venture to say that right now, if you are a true follower of Jesus, you have a deep-seated yearning to obey God and to be used by God. You want your life to matter for all of eternity. And I would bet the overwhelming majority of people right now would say, if the Lord would choose to use me in such a powerful way, for the next 20, 50 years, however many years that Lord gave me, and he were to, on this earth, never show me how it is that I would be used, but he would use me powerfully in the lives of other people, I would venture to say the overwhelming majority of people would say, I'll take that. I want to be used more than I want to be acknowledged. I think you have that real, true, sincere desire. And you know what else I think you have simultaneously that's going on inside of you? I think at times you are filled with such bitterness and anger that you would like for someone to be harmed. Maybe not physically, but you would like for them to be harmed emotionally in the way that you've been harmed. I think you have some desires inside of you that you would say, I hope no one ever sees what's inside of me. Join the club. It's not just you. Don't look at the person to the right or the left of you or three rows in front of you or the person down the street or at some other church. Don't ever think, there's no way they can struggle like I struggle. They do. And let me tell you from experience, now at 52 years old, I struggle more at 52 than I did at 22. I think my flesh has gotten worse not better. The Spirit of God has gotten stronger. There's an increased desire to be used by God, but I think I'm way worse off now than I was in my early 20s in terms of what is natural, what is normal, but it is sinful. It's not cute. They are at war with one another. Very quickly, in the scriptures, James tells us about uh, temptation. 
And he wants us to see where it is that temptation is coming from. We all know that there's temptation from outside sources, etc. But ultimately, he gets to the heart of it when he says this in verse uh, 13 of James chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Man, we're victims, aren't we? When lured and enticed, each person is tempted. Yeah, keep going, James. Tell me about all the bad things somebody else did. Lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. The desire that is within me is luring and enticing. That's when I am tempted by what's already going on inside in the natural part of me, the normal part called Dave. And the Spirit of God says, I'm going to wage war on that right there. Later on, we'll get to it next week, but in verse 24 of Galatians, it talks about crucifying the desires of the flesh. Does that sound like it's a nice little management plan? Let's see how we can get on top of this. You know, just keep, keep an eye on things. Make some adjustments, some tweaks to the flesh here. Do this. Understand this. Understand that we are at war. Then he says to this, believe this in verse 18, that we are not under the law. What does it mean to not be under the law? I'm going to make this as simple as I know to make it. And yet it's going to be one of the hardest things for us to believe. We are no longer under the power of the law and we are no longer under the penalty of the law. That through Christ's death, he removes all possibility that true followers of Jesus, God's children, we will never, ever, ever face eternal consequences. Never. And we have no one to give thanks to but Jesus Christ. He alone did everything that was necessary to remove the penalty of sin. What is that penalty? The scriptures are very clear. God tells those, uh, the couple in the garden that death is going to be the result of sin. Paul affirms that in, uh, in Romans and lets us know that that is indeed still the price on this there. However, Christ has done something that can remove that penalty from all who come to Jesus by faith. But we have also been removed, get this, from the power of the law. What do I mean by that? Not, I don't mean that the law no longer is in place. I don't mean that the law is no longer valid. I don't mean that the law no longer has a standard that we're to adhere to. It just means this that we now no longer have to be afraid of what the law is going to do. And so the external motivation to do the right thing so that we can avoid the punishment, that no longer is a part of the equation because our hearts have now been transformed to do something different. What now is that we have a love relationship with God and we now have a motive to walk with him, to serve him, to obey him simply because we're in relationship with him. It's not the external motivation of what might happen if I don't do this. It's, God, I know who your character is. I know who you are, and you have loved me so well. I just want to love you. You're no longer under the law. You don't have to fear. 
real quick, please do not misunderstand. Um, it does not mean that consequences are removed from, from horrific decisions. It just means that the eternal consequence of hell is no longer something that we have to fear. Do this, understand this, believe this. Know this about the flesh. This is where we stop here today. I'll talk about this, and then we'll finish that little know this, et cetera, next week. But this is where we go, oh, man, can't wait. Glad we got to this part. It's going to be an upper. <laughs> can't wait to walk through this list. Know this about the flesh. Our flesh is worse than we think it is. Most folks who uh, study this, most theologians will tell you that what Paul lists here in these two lists, here's the, the, the list of the, the bad stuff, here's the, the works of the flesh, and then here's the works of the spirit. These are two lists that he is intentionally comparing and contrasting to what would have been common in the Greek philosophy of the day. I am fully convinced that that's what he's doing. He's giving us this contrast um, in here, um, but it also is just, it, it's just true. The two catalogs of sinful deeds and holy traits closely parallel the virtues, et cetera, that are laid out for the Greek philosophers, Cicero, um, et cetera. The acts of the sinful nature are divided into three categories. Category number one, sensual sins. Sexual immorality is a broad term. It covers all forms of physical Relationship with someone that is not your spouse. That would be fornication, adultery, etc. All of that is included. Every sin that you could think of is covered in this category. It's meaning sin outside of marriage. Impurity is a broad term, and uh, it has more to do uh, with the uncleanness of our thought life, uh, moral life, etc., uh, they would have speech, um, actions, all of that would be included um, into it. Impurity, um, uh, unclean of the mind, heart, etc., that makes its way out of the mouth. And then finally, sensuality, it's just a, um, um, it's bold, it's unashamed. It, it is um, a certain level of pride, if you will, um, in its um, sexual freedom. Now, we don't see that anywhere in our world today, do we? People who become really desensitized through uh, exploits uh, um, eventually lose all forms of modesty. I don't, please, this is not a, you know, when I was a child, things were much better. Um, they weren't, they were just different um, in, in terms of their form. But I will say this, when I was growing up, I can only say this is true of my friends, that there was um, a certain measure of protection um, that was expected back in that day, that you wanted to protect people's reputations. That seems like it's just out the door now. That's what he is uh, uh, getting at. The second category of the sinful acts are religious in nature. And there's just two that he mentions here. Two religious sins. Idolatry, uh, which was specifically in this day and age, bowing down to uh, pagan gods. That term can obviously be used in a broader sense um, that we have. Anything that is good that takes on godlike status would be an, uh, uh, an idol for us. 
Um, and then sorcery, the word that he uses, refers to its magical potions and it's all that stuff that came with the Smurfs and, and other things, you know, like that. It's, it's stuff that, um, um, don't, don't, man, don't send me letters on this, but don't get upset with Harry Potter. That's a fantasy world. Um, this is real stuff that people are trying to do to cast spells and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I don't run into a whole lot of sorcerers in, in, here in Tallahassee. You may, um, I, I don't. The final category they list are social sins. The first one he says is enmity. It is the first of eight nouns that Paul is going to mention, all of which are going to refer to in essence, what, what is, in essence, the breakdown of human relationships. There is enmity. It is a hatred. It is the opposite of love. It is a hostile, hostile attitude towards one another. Now, again, the easiest thing for us to do is going to be to look at society as a whole, and we can find a whole bunch of places where we can see this. Can I just point out one place? I think social media is a great invention, and I mean that. I think social media is an incredible tool. It has tremendous potential. And I'm going to talk next week about how we've seen the best of social media with the football player who had a heart attack on the field earlier. And then what's happened this week is phenomenal. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. But this is the easiest place for, for uh, some on social media to go, to have just utter disdain and distaste, to just spew forth speech um, that does nothing constructive. Because you can be really, really courageous behind the keyboard. Say whatever it is that you want to say. It's in the heart. It just makes its way out into the fingers and out of the mouth. Strife is another one that he uses. This is contentious temper. This is uh, something that is, um, think of this as always on the edge, ready to uh, move forward. There is jealousy. Jealousy is when we want what other people have. Now hear me. Jealousy stems not because we want something good. Jealousy stems ultimately because we're saying it's not okay that they have it and I don't, which is an indication that I just don't have peace that God has given me that I can be content with what I have. It's a good thing to want the kind of relationship with a child, for example, that some other parent has. That's a good thing. See that. Be inspired by it. Be motivated by that. Say, oh, God, I long to have that kind of relationship. All that's fine. It's not fine to think poorly of them because they are somehow another in a category that I can't be. Fits of anger. I don't know that this needs a great deal of instruction. I can just tell you my last name is McNeely. That whole Irish temper thing is real. So clearly it's not my fault. Fits of anger means this, is that there is not the restraint of it, it is the unleashing of it. Hear me now, hear me. Anger in and of itself is not sin. Because God is angry. God is angry at sin. What we do with our anger, how we unleash our anger, how we control anger, that determines whether or not we're going to deal with it appropriately. 
It is good and right for you to be angry at the sin of yourself, at the sin of your spouse, at the sin of your child, at the sin of your boss. It is good and right to be angry at sin. How do you unleash that anger? Hopefully it's in a constructive rather than a destructive manner. Here he's talking about destructive. Rivalries. I found this interesting. I did not know this until a couple weeks ago in preparation for this. This term is actually derived from the political culture of ancient Greece where it meant office seeking or canvassing for office. I am making no comment. I mean that. No comment on our current political culture. I'm not. I'm saying I find it interesting that he says here what it means is, is intentionally seeking something at the expense of someone else. Not intentionally seeking it because I'm saying, God, I think you could use me in a great way and I think that your kingdom could, could benefit. If you're called into politics, stay in politics and, and, and we pray for you and we just pray for a gentleman today who's spending his, his life ministering to politics. Please don't hear that. Politicians are not the problem. It is this seeking something out of selfish ambition, especially at the expense of others that we got to guard against. Dissensions. Paul uses this word only on only one other occasion in Romans 16, 17, when he says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put up obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have uh, learned. Keep away from them. The only other time he uses this exact word. Divisions, the next one, this word is a cousin word to it, finds only one other occurrence in all of Paul's writings, and that is in 1 Corinthians eleven nine. And he speaks of various factions within the church, but here's the idea behind this on the, the, the dissensions and the divisions. The dissensions, think of this, is sort of the, um, uh, the, um, um, the, the effect of what's happening the divisions right here is the intentional choosing of sides. And let that sit. It is intentionally choosing sides. How many sides do we have in the church? One. And it's not your side. And it's not my side. It's God's side. And that's why when a decision is made, for example, by the leadership of the church, keep in mind, I don't have the power to make decisions. I'm one elder. I'm not the elder in the church. No individual elder can make decisions in the church. When the collective body makes them, guess whose will that is? God's will. And our job is not to say, I don't know that I want to be on that side. It is... God has spoken, and now we're going to jump on board with that, with flawed dudes. Finally, envy. It is also the cousin of jealousy. The word for jealousy was listed in the singular in the language. This word envy is listed in the plural. I only want to draw attention to this. And that is to say, I think what he's getting at right here in particular is envy of other churches. <clears throat> um, pastors have to be aware of this one. Leaders have to be aware of this one. 
If at any point you ever determine that there is another church that's a better fit for you, please know that all of us in leadership would say, we, we, we hate that because we, we, we would hate missing you. But if you feel as though that's the best thing for your family, we want to send you with blessing and encouragement. What I don't want you to do is to try to shop around to see whatever might be the best thing for you as it pertains to this specific area and this specific area and the, and the 41 criteria that you lay out. Come in with a mindset of how can I help make this the place that God wants it to be? And if that's here, it's here. If it's somewhere else, it's somewhere else. Orgies and drunkenness, you've already, we've already spoken briefly to that. I think he just ties these two things together because of the connection of alcohol and sexual sin. I don't have to spell that out, do I? Alcohol leads to some really poor decisions. Alcohol is good in and of itself. Too much alcohol is a really bad idea. That's God's words. Let me close, rather than going to Romans 7, which I would planned to do, let me close with just three time-tested ways to resist the urges that come from within. I'm already over my time, and I apologize, but I think this is important. Number one, pray for communion with God and pray with confession to God. Three time-tested ways to resist the urges that come from within. Pray for communion with God and pray with confession to God. When you pray, pray in a manner that is trying to get to know God and allowing God to get to know you. He already knows you. I know you know that, but you know what I mean by that. Pray in a manner that the primary function and design of that prayer is is relationship. And then pray with regular confession to God. Please don't hide your sin from God. He knows about it anyway. The penalty has already been taken care of. It does you no good whatsoever to keep your sin from God. So pray with communion. Pray for communion with God and pray with confession to God. Number two, recognize the source, the situation, and the solution. Recognize the source of your temptation. It is coming from within There may be some external things that are putting aid to that, but understand it is the battle within, the war that is coming from within. Recognize that. Recognize that the situation you're in might could have been avoided. Know what situations you find yourself more vulnerable than others. Do you find yourself consistently stumbling in this particular way? Then please keep your eyes alert. Look out for that. Be watchful that you don't walk into that without uh, thinking it through. Recognize the source, the situation, and finally, what's the solution? The solution is what we're going to talk about next week, but the solution is not by you grinning and bearing it. Your, your, your solution is, is the power of God. Number three, move away from the dark and into the light. The most dangerous life is a secret life. And if nobody else knows about what's going on with your struggle, you're in a really dangerous place. So move out of the darkness in that particular moment. Flee from whatever it is that you're tempted to do there. Get get away from that. Remove yourself from it. But move very quickly into light with someone else. Let somebody else know that you're struggling. Addicts know this. Those who have had success in recovery know this. The best thing to do when you are sensing, you know you've got that urge that's coming up, you want it, what do you need to do? Reach out to your sponsor. Don't do this alone. 
My friends, we all have natural and yet sinful desires, and we're called to fight that urge. Next week, hallelujah, we get to talk about what we get to do on the positive side. Let me pray.